Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Tom Thurston. Today I'm talking with Eric Matheson. He received his PhD in history from the University of Pennsylvania and currently teaches at Queen Mary, University of London, where he's a lecturer. He is the author of one book, The Loyal Republic, Traitors, Slaves, and the Remaking of Citizenship in the Civil War, America. He's currently working on a project called The World of Reconstruction, Emancipation and the American Diplomatic Mission. So Eric, how did you come to this like new direction in your scholarship after a, a book that seemed to be about strictly American? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I started getting interested at the end of the research uh, for my first book um, in what happened to Civil War soldiers after they finished after they finished their time in the military. And uh, it became something of a geeky obsession. Uh-huh. Um, I started making little lists of where people went. And you know some of the stories are quite well known, and uh, some of them weren't. And um, I started noticing that an awful lot of them ended up in the State Department as uh, diplomats, as, as consuls, as you know, kind of attaches. Sure. And uh, that got me really interested. And from there, it sort of mushroomed into this uh, much bigger study. Um, which is, uh, yeah, but that's where it started. Is there an influence, a kind of, uh, the experiences of the Civil War, are they carried into the diplomatic corps and into, you know, I w- like foreign policy itself? Yeah. Well, I'm starting to discover that that's, that's a part of what's happening, or uh-huh. at least it seems as though a lot of these guys left the army and ended up uh, not just in the diplomatic corps, but a lot of their, their letters and correspondence suggests that they saw the world in a lot of ways through the the prism of the their civil war sure. experience, um, and even in places far afield, uh, Southeast Asia, North Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, um, they seem to kind of see see world events in the place of the United States in it um, through that through that lens, um, and I, I think that that has it had an influence. Uh, it had an influence on how the State Department conducted itself. Um, it had an influence on on a lot of the information that the State Department was getting, and that undoubtedly influenced a lot of decisions that were made. And so, of course, this is not only uh, the end of the Civil War, but the beginning of Reconstruction. And uh, and you know, in a, in in a in a sense, Reconstruction is happening other places as well throughout right. the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was um, the middle of the nineteenth century was a time of profound change across a lot of the world, um, sort of a, a process, economic, political, that had that had started in the early 19th century was beginning to accelerate so that by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, you have a lot of, um, a lot of empires like the British Empire, sure. a lot of European empires in the race for Africa, and um, in the case of the United States, the example we know best probably is the sort of uh, the relations between the U.S. and China. Um, trying to open the door to China to to expand American business, and um, so it was a time of incredible upheaval. And in a way, Reconstruction 
we think of it as a national story, sure. but actually there was a, a lot of change taking place that was that was kind of building an intensity toward the end of the, the 19th century that was very much um, influenced the creation of the modern world we live in. Right, and, and say the case uh, of, of many uh, European nations, uh, uh, England for, uh, for one, yeah. uh, their kind of restructuring uh, begins well before ours. They yeah. uh, find themselves uh, uh, with uh, colonies uh, that have been emancipated. They have a kind of uh, abolitionist uh, policy regarding uh, Africa that that people argue fits into a new colonialist policy. Sure. And uh, so this must be uh, intriguing to Americans to yeah. see something going on in, in, in their southern... Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I think um, we tend to assume, I suppose, that because the Civil War was such a profound profoundly important moment in the country's history. There's a, there's, a, there's a way in which we sort of presume that Americans were thinking about it in a very insular way. And obviously that was a concern. But if you read newspapers from the period, and particularly in the years after the Civil War, they're filled with foreign news. I mean, they're absolutely just as they would be today, right? Uh -huh, People sure. wondering about the world and wanting to know more and uh, trying to make connections between what's going on in the United States and what's going on abroad. And um, so there was a real keen interest in that. And that's to say nothing of the the worry, if you like, on the part of, the, of, of Americans and the American government that there was something happening in the world where Western powers were beginning to exert more influence. And the United States wanted to be a part of that. Right. And, uh, of course, they're also preoccupied not only with uh, reconstructing the South, but this westward expansion that is uh, yeah. engaging them in, in battles with Native people and, yeah. and resulting in, in huge kind of masses of uh, territory being, yeah. being uh, 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 settled. Yeah. Uh, so how, how did the experience abroad uh, get them to rethink what's actually going on in, in the Reconstruction South. Right. Well, a lot of the, a lot of what I've seen thus far anyway, um, is that the, the emancipation of African Americans um, was seen through an international lens. Um, you could see it before the war, certainly, in that uh, a lot of people were thinking about emancipation, to, to say the least of, of African Americans thinking about what the future might hold. They looked to examples like Haiti for sure. inspiration. Um, Slaveholders right up through the end of the Civil War and even in the months thereafter were thinking an awful lot about whether they would be compensated for the loss of their slaves, uh, as the, it was the case in the 1830s in the, in the British colonies. Um, so I think a lot, of the, a lot of the concern about emancipation took on a kind of international, even global, um, uh, it became a global concern. Sure. And a lot, of the, um, a lot of the ideas that kind of emerged out of that, that, that view of, of emancipation as being something larger than just an American concern, um, a lot of that really became influential in the way that people saw other parts of the world, uh, particularly the case of, of uh, Cuba, Brazil, places where slavery still existed, still yeah. um, but also you know other parts of the Caribbean, uh, India, uh, Africa. Um, you know that they really kind of uh, appreciated that their their moment or the moment when the United States was beginning to to consider emancipation that moment had global implications. It was part of a global story. Right, and it was only, 
well, by in 1862, just before the Emancipation Proclamation, they're still uh, discussing colonization schemes. The yeah. preliminary Emancipation Proclamation right. even call, kind of hints that this may be uh, in the offing yeah. and then it's quietly kind of removed from yeah. the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, yeah. One of the stories that I, I kind of came across was this uh, this diplomat who uh, is, is a consul in uh, Demerara in British Guiana. And, uh, so on the the north of the yeah, South America, right? Yeah, north yeah. northeastern, kind of the northeastern part of South America. Right. And um, in any event, he arrives in Demerara and has uh, wonderful things to say about the place. Uh, thinks it's a fantastic uh, colony. They're they're you know doing so well. It's going to be a, a huge success in the years to come. And part of the reason why Demerara, in his mind, was a success was because of the number of coolie laborers who had been sent from India to to the colony. And this was part of a much larger story in the British Caribbean. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, about a million odd uh, Indian laborers ended up in the Caribbean. Yeah, And um, he thinks that this is great and, and writes back to his superiors, the assistant secretary of state, William Seward's son. Uh, he says, this is a fantastic opportunity. We should really get involved in this by sending our our freed slaves, African-Americans who had been sort of freed in the Union and were at the time in contraband camps all over the Confederate South, they would be well-placed to become indentured laborers here. He uh, writes this letter with, complete with a proposal. He uh, encourages the, the colonial government to send an emissary to Washington to kind of negotiate. Uh -huh. And uh, he thinks it's all, you know, going to work out just fine for for him and right. also for the colony. Right. Um, but it comes to nothing, and uh, it's one of those moments I think where you, you start to see a much broader world of change in the way that labor was being understood by a lot of people in the in the Americas generally. Um, it's sort of. It, it, in American history, it's kind of an offshoot. It's sort of like a side story. Right. It, because nothing happened, it seems unimportant. Exactly. But in actual fact, th this is part of a much larger process, so much so that by the end of the Civil War, you have uh, Chinese laborers in, in, in Louisiana. Sure. You have uh, lots of other laborers signed up to contracts uh, throughout the South, n to say nothing of, of African-Americans being over the course of several years signed up to sharecropping contracts. Right. And this is a, a, a global labor system that has been developing for at least three decades. Yeah. Yeah. Really since the since the moment that, the, that Britain emancipated their slaves. Uh -huh. um, so this is a much larger story of which the Civil War is but a part. And I suppose in the case of Demerara, you have this one instance of a diplomat who sort of sees this bigger picture. He might not know what to make of it. Right. But he sees this bigger picture and realizes that American emancipation is just one small part of a much bigger story. So and he makes this proposal at that moment. And though the war is underway, it's before it's 1862. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and then is, of course, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, put yeah, it's <laughs> quietly new, put down. Yeah, quietly, sort of in that great <laughs> diplomatic way that things often do. You sort of get this idea that it kind of builds on paper to a crescendo, it but looks nothing wonderful. happens. Yeah. And then suddenly no one's returning your, your yeah, message. In. Exactly. It's sort of, yeah, put on hold. Uh, he writes this letter, and then after about uh, two weeks or so, 
uh, he starts writing these other letters, you know, asking basically what has happened because he's he's sort of hitched his career on this yeah. idea. And uh, nothing happens, of course, because the the American and British government can't get together on on a plan. Right. Uh, and that's to say nothing of the fact that at the same time, the Emancipation Proclamation is being discussed in earnest at the highest levels. And so the United States decides to go in a slightly different direction. Um, and we always kind of cast that moment as being uh, a moment, uh, kind of a what if, right? Uh-huh. Uh, we talk about Abraham Lincoln and his thoughts about colonization. We say, well, how strange it is that a president who who was for emancipation could also be for colonization, which is effectively what sure. this was. Um, but in actual fact, that story uh, would become part of, of what would happen in the United States in the years that followed. Uh, and whether it was labor contracts or sharecropping, you know, that that... The, the thing that you saw in Demerar in the, in the middle of the Civil War was actually something that would come crashing onto American shores in the, the years thereafter. And um, we don't often think about that because we take the Emancipation Proclamation as being the important moment. Right. And important in, in the way that we think of it as marking the, uh, the, the victory of free labor right. over unfree labor. Right. But seen in a global context yeah. where where uh, there have been emancipations throughout the Caribbean and and, sure. and, and all over yeah. it's more a continuation of another uh, other forms of yeah. less free labor yeah or, yeah and that I think is a really uh, it's an interesting thing to think about and it challenges a lot of what we think about the, the war and reconstruction because uh, when we think of the Civil War we think of it not only as a turning point but really the nation kind of turning a page and starting a new chapter, and this idea of freedom as being one of the most important things that kind of uh, unites the history of the United States in the decades that followed. Um, that becomes the big story. Right. In actual fact, though, there's this other story of kind of less than free labor or slightly unfree labor, uh, labor in kind of uh, shades of gray, really. Um, it's sort of a patchwork quilt of labor arrangements that you see throughout the Americas that would come to dominate the United States by the time you get to the 1860s, 70s, and sure. in the decades thereafter. And, you know, another thing that you challenge that certainly other people have spoken to as well, but the notion that uh, that this is a battle between capitalism, a, a kind of uh, uh, vital and resurgent capitalism right. and kind of older uh, systems of labor. Right. Uh, and But you would say that that's, uh, again, taking uh, a, the wrong picture of what is yeah. truly happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, traditionally for, for people who are interested in the study of slavery, the 19th, the early 19th century is this moment where capitalism and slavery clash and capitalism wins out. Right. And this is out, the common kind of the the old narrative. Yeah, the old story, and you know it goes back to to Karl Marx and Eric Williams in the 1940s. Yeah. I mean, there was an awful lot invested in this idea that um, the development of capitalism no longer needed slavery to exist, and so the forces of free labor, to say nothing of the kind of international flow of capital and the need for kind of free trade, um, that becomes the dominant economic system. And slavery becomes somehow a um, kind of a throwback, uh, sort of a polyp, uh, kind of a pre-modern system uh, that no longer was needed, which is why it begins to contract. Right. Um, right. So that, you know, by the 1860s, the United States, Cuba and Brazil are really the only places where slavery proper still exists. Um, 
But I think more recently, a lot of historians have begun to rethink this idea. And uh, in doing so, I think they've really challenged this, this notion that slavery and capitalism clashed, when in fact, if you look at you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of emancipations and their aftermath in the 1850s and 60s. Sure. Um, you see a, an awful lot of, uh, a, lot, an awful, a kind of historical moment in which slavery and capitalism kind of mesh, mix and mingle in some interesting ways. Hmm. Um, so the most recent work by a lot of historians on the subject have suggested that um, slavery fit perfectly within a capitalist system. In fact, Plantations were actually the place where slavery or where capitalism's uh, they, they were like laboratories right, for capitalism. Labor on an industrial scale. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, um, if that's, I guess, the where my work kind of begins is this idea that if if that's another way of thinking about the development and the history of slavery, then what happens in the 1860s when these uh, these last three kind of titans of slaveholding, the United States, Cuba, and Brazil. What happens when they begin to fall? Right. And w what happens to ideas about labor in the decades thereafter? The, you know, the other thing that I think your work addresses is uh, the idea of, uh, of a, the second slavery, which, uh, at least in my reading, I've seen mainly addressed to, to non-U.S. Uh, uh, places. That yeah. this is, uh, sure. And it's not to say uh, that it doesn't fit necessarily, but that it just seems that uh, that Latin America, for example, there's been lots of great work done on the subject. But yeah. I think you make you're really bringing together that as well into this into this picture. Yeah, definitely. Um, at least that's my hope. Um, yeah, the second slavery literature kind of started in the 1990s uh, with the work of a guy named Dale Tomich. Sure. He's uh, been here as well. Has, it, well oh, yeah. There you go. Uh, and uh, Tomich's work was really interesting. He wrote a first book in uh, it was published in 1990 on Martinique. And um, the book was a really fascinating study, uh, very th kind of thick in description. Um, but it, it was kind of an outlier in relation to the rest of the, the literature on on slavery in the, in the right. 1830s and right. 40s. Um, but he was making a really interesting argument, which is actually that, that slavery and capitalism kind of mix and mingle and that they, they, they sort of form a, a seamless whole by the 1830s and 40s. And out of that, he's developed, and, and a lot of other people, particularly, as you say, Latin Americanists and Caribbeanists, sure. um, they've developed this idea that um, the end of, or the so-called age of revolution, the moment when we traditionally think of the the slow end of slavery right, right. as beginning right. uh, with the American Revolution right. and the Haitian Revolution. The Enlightenment Revolution and, and the Enlightenment, that are, all of right. that. Yeah, that, um, that where we think of it, we, we've thought of it traditionally as an end, an end point, but actually the second slavery begins to take shape. And what this is, is this, um, this new slave system that develops on, as you say, an industrial scale. Um, where uh, where plantation labor begins to become uh, dominated by a kind of almost scientific understanding of how you can wring the most labor out of your bonds people. Right. And they begin to use, and, you know, a lot of the literature on this uh, kind of brings this out, that, you know, slaveholders were the first ones to use uh, accounting books in, sure. in great detail, and they were the first ones to kind of quantify how much labor you could get. Um, on how much labor you needed to get the most out of your crop, whatever right. that crop might be. And uh, Tomich and others begin to see this as, as a really important moment where this new slave system begins to take shape. So rather than seeing slavery as a kind of, um, as a system frozen in amber, a kind of unchanging thing, 
they're, they're beginning to see it as having a very different character. And out of that has come a flurry of work, some of it connected to the second slavery, some of it not. Uh-huh. Um, you know, recent books by um, Sven Beckert and Walter Johnson sure. and Ed Baptist right. all kind of made this this point. Um, but I think one of the good things about the second slavery literature thus far is that it, because it's Caribbean and Latin American focused, it's it's got a real transnational uh, frame of, of, of reference. And I think that that's, that's one of the interesting things that I think a lot of American historians could pick up and run with. Do you think that... Uh you know, you b- began our discussion by talking about these um, uh, Civil War officers who are now in the diplomatic corps. Are they kind of thinking through these ideas? You, mm. they're—I mean, they're those—they're in an international uh, place. Sure. Yeah, I think that they're beginning to, um, and you begin to see it in their correspondence when they start to to uh, write about. Uh, they start to write dispatches about what's going on in their particular place, wherever it might be. Um, so in the case of U.S. consuls, for instance, they're often stationed in port cities around the world. Um, and they're, they're being asked by the State Department for information about what's going on, not just what's being traded or, or um, what the political circumstances of the area are, but, you know, w- what's, what's being grown in these places, what's being sold in these places. Sure. Um, and out of that, they start to draw these connections. And I suppose it's natural because... You, you, your frame of reference, if you're a, uh, if you're a foreign office person living in a in a foreign country, is to sort of make connections between the world that you're familiar with back home and this new place. Uh-huh. Um, but a lot of the connections that they begin to draw are um, are really interesting, and they have a lot to do with that with that Civil War experience. So whether it's thinking about labor, thinking about uh, of uh, the flow of capital, thinking about um, the the place of these various classes of people that they see working in a particular port city or a particular region, um, it begins to have that that they begin to see this as as a kind of um, uh, a relation between their own their own country back home and and where they're where they've been posted. And I think that's a really it's an interesting start anyway to a to a, a kind of worldview that begins to take shape in the 1860s. So I know this. You're early on on your thinking and writing about this. How do you have a kind of uh, a structure? Uh, how like do you do you know? You know yeah. Can you give us a spoiler and tell us yeah, how? Yeah, uh, a spoiler. You know, where do you go? From, yeah. How do you how do you wrap this story up? Yeah. Well, um, I don't really know. I I I think that. Um, I think one of the things that's that's great about starting a, a new project is that you you're not entirely sure where sure. it's going to take you. <laughs> yeah. So it's a really kind of it's a bit of discovery that could be terrifying in some cases, but it's actually uh, really exciting too. So I don't really know where it's going to take me. Um, I think the thing that I've been really heartened by is the fact that I found a really a lot of really interesting. Uh, really interesting sources, yeah. Uh, and I wasn't sure that I was going to find them, um, but uh, I think that the probably the parameters of the project are going to begin before the Civil War, roughly, and uh, go up to the eighteen eighteen eighties. I think. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think what I'm really interested in doing is thinking about at the end of this project about about sharecropping, uh-huh. about the the kind of economic choices that African Americans were forced to make. Um, we tend to assume that that was that was uh, because of circumstances within uh, the United States, and some historians have even said that African Americans chose 
to be sharecroppers because it was uh, an opportunity for them to work their own land in a relatively independent right, way. Sure. Um, and I think what I'm trying to do is to kind of crack open that older idea um, because, of course, sharecropping becomes uh, one labor arrangement among many, many by the time you get to the, right. the end of the 19th century. Right. And it's not just in the United States. No, it's of course not. everywhere. Yeah. So sharecropping in Eastern Europe was involved many millions uh -huh. of, of people who were former serfs in, in Eastern Europe. There were forms of forced labor in, in the new colonial uh, Africa. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, of course, Abs the Caribbean. And yeah, yeah. And I, I think that that's a really important story to tell. So a story of kind of international labor. Yeah. Um, which I think has a lot of, of implications for how we think about not just the 20th century, but the, the 21st century right. too, uh, because I think that's, that's come to dominate our world in some pretty profound ways. Well, it's very interesting because as uh, the center here is, is also very interested in the question of modern slavery mm -hmm. and, and as historians thinking about how do you, you know, what is that history? And right. I think some of the work that you're doing uh, kind of provides a path to kind of think about how yeah. how uh, unfree forms of labor uh, in the contemporary world yeah. kind of come about. Yeah. No, I think it's a it's a really important uh, topic with a lot of relevance for today. And you know, there's been some really good recent work on the subject, but I think that um, I think a lot of it has been focused on kind of the the more immediate past. If sure. You like. Yeah. Um, when in reality, I think there's a much bigger story to tell that has a much longer trajectory. Um, and I suppose the trouble or the challenge for historians is that invariably we, we, we're focused on change over time, right? That's one of the big, absolutely one of the purposes of yeah. history. And uh, so we're, we're usually uh, kind of, um, we're not keen to sort of suggest that, that there's more continuity than change. Um, and I think that's one of the things the second slavery is really pushing back at is this idea that there was so much change in this right. century. And I guess the implication is if there wasn't as much change, if there was more continuity, um, then what does that mean when you get to the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th sure. century? Um, not just in the United States, but in lots of places as well. So I suppose if if my project's going to have any legs at all, it'll be kind of filling in that backstory to the the, the history of modern slavery. Well, I think you're doing a great service. Uh, you're just hearing you talk about your work has been fascinating. I'm really excited well, about you. it, and hope uh, when the book is out, which I'm sure will be soon. Oh yeah, yes, of course. Uh, but when it's out, that you'll uh, uh, return. And, yeah, uh, I hope and, so too. And it's uh, been great having you for what seems like a very short month. It uh, was all too short, but thank uh, you very much. All right. Well, thank you too. Cheers. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera, with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.